Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Katrine Marcel. Katrine is an award-winning author, journalist, and keynote speaker. Her first book, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, has been translated into more than 20 languages and was hailed by Margaret Atwood as a smart, funny, readable book on economics, money, and women. It was named one of The Guardian's Books of the Year in 2015. Katrine works for the largest broadsheet newspaper in Sweden, and she was one of only a handful of European journalists to get an exclusive interview with Michelle Obama before the publication of the former First Lady's memoir, Becoming, in 2018. In her role as a financial journalist, Katrine has interviewed many of the world's most respected economic thinkers, like Nouriel Roubini and Nassim Taleb. Her book, Mother of Invention, How Good Ideas Get Ignored in an Economy Built for Men, became a bestseller in Sweden in 2020 and will be published in English in 2021. Now, I start off by asking Katrine to talk to us about feminist economics and to explain how modern economics has failed us and what needs to change. We talk about the pandemic and how this has had an adverse effect on women and the implication on their financial situation. Katrine talks to us about her new book on women's innovation. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Katrine, thank you for joining me today. Welcome to the Purse Podcast. Thank you. Now, you're an expert in feminist economics, and I'm curious to know what attracted you initially to the field of economics. I guess I was always somebody who was interested in the big forces shaping our world and trying to understand them and came to economics you know from that then I made the mistake of studying economics at university in Sweden where I'm from and was almost completely turned off the whole idea of economics because of the way it was taught and the perspective but I guess that was also a good thing because it brought me to feminist economics I mean I even had a professor who was saying in front of 200 students that men are better at economics than women and they understand it faster. And this was in Sweden not that long ago, 15, 20 years ago. And it was shocking how male the whole field was. And I guess an anger about that brought me to the field of feminist economics. And it was something that I started specializing in as a journalist pretty early on. For the purposes of our listeners who may not have a background in economics, can you describe what economics is and how does it help us understand the world in general terms? You know, it's the study of markets and economic relationships. And I mean, it's quite a loaded question, actually, you're asking, because I guess economists would disagree on that as well, on sort of what should economists study and why and how. I guess feminist economics is all about that, about widening the field of economics, because it's kind of a fundamental problem with a lot of economic theory in that it excludes women and a lot of the work that women do. 
And in standard economic theory, that is this a very narrow definition of that economic relationships are only the things we do for self-interest, for the exchange of money and goods in the formal economy. That's what economists should study. And that type of definition of economics excludes large chunks of the economy, you know, unpaid work, care work, a lot of the things that women have been expected to do and still do in the economy and that obviously are still very important. So a lot of what feminist economics is about is widening the scope and looking at the economy in a different way. You wrote this magnificent book called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, which is essentially a takedown of modern economics. How has modern economics failed us? The theory is built on the exclusion of women, which is a problem because we make up a majority of the world's population. In the book, I go back to Adam Smith, the founding father of economics, who in the 1700s up in Scotland wrote the book, The Wealth of Nations. And there he asks what became the founding question of economics. And that question is, how do you get your dinner? He was interested in that. He was interested in what keeps the economy going. You know, we assume that we can just go to the shop and there will be goods to buy there, bread and toilet paper and whatever. And actually, for these things to happen, lots of coordinated and very complex economic processes need to take place. And somehow it all kind of still works. So why is that? And his answer to this founding question of economics was, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that you get your dinner, but from them serving their own self-interest. So this idea that, you know, we go to work, not because we love it or we love our clients or we love making bread, if that's what we do, but we do it to turn a profit. And this drive to turn a profit, to serve your self-interest, to make money, that's what keeps the market going and keeps the economy working. And economists that came after Adam Smith, they made a very big deal out of this. And they even sort of called economics the science of self-interest. And I think Adam Smith himself would probably faint if he heard that. I don't think he would agree with that. But the bit that economists that came after Adam Smith picked out was this idea that self-interest was the fundamental driving force of the economy. And then this turned into, you know, other ideas like greed is good. If we only let people serve their own self-interest and go out and do their bit, then that is what makes the economy grow. And that actually turns into what's best for everyone. Again, Adam Smith would probably be horrified by that. But I take it back to actually the founding question of economics and ask, as you know, what the book is called, who cooked Adam Smith's dinner? Because it's not the butcher and the brewer and the baker that need to produce their goods in order for Adam Smith to be able to eat. If you look at his life, he never married and he lived most of his life with his mother who looked after the household for him. And she is a big part of that answer. You know, how do you get your dinner that he completely forgot or excluded? The work that she did 
in the household in order for him to get his dinner and be comfortable and you know have his clothes washed and all of these things they are also part of the economy i would argue and the feminist economist would argue but adam smith forgot about it and therefore we fundamentally still misunderstand the economy we hear about gdp all the time right gdp falling and is one of these measurements probably the most important economic measurement, unpaid work within the home is not counted in GDP measurement. So what a lot of women do, especially if we're looking at developing economies where women might be walking from one, one village to the other to fetch water and then work around all day, looking after children, cooking meals, that is completely invisible in economic statistics. And that's a problem. It also means that in 2020, when lockdown happened in a lot of economies, schools shut, daycare centers shut, that work still needed to be continued by somebody. You know, somebody needed to look after the children, but it completely disappeared in economic statistics because suddenly it was primarily women who were expected to do this work at home in addition to the paid work that many of them or most of them were also doing. But we couldn't see it. You know, we're not used to measuring. We're not sort of used to thinking about it as an economic activity. And it just gives us a completely wrong picture of what is wealth, how is wealth created. Adam Smith's book was called The Wealth of Nations, after all. And one of the most fundamental economic decisions that any society needs to make is sort of what's this balance going to be like you know we need productive work and we also need reproductive work somebody needs to look after the children and all the work that's done around the family and in the house and there's also things like volunteering for example during lockdown here in England where both you and I live yes GDP fell massively when big chunks of the formal economy shut down, but volunteering, for example, increased. You know, you had millions of people volunteering for the health services, and that was also invisible in the economy. But obviously, it matters to the economy and it matters to people. And we don't see it and we don't measure it and we don't take it into account when we do economic analysis. And that hurts women because women often have specialized more into these things than men. And it also makes us, you know, misunderstand what's going on. So what are the implications on women, the, the fact that, that we're invisible to this field of, of economics? I mean, it, that's something they say in the corporate sphere a lot. If it's not measured, it doesn't get done, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's the truth in it, definitely. It's also the devaluing of this type of work. You know, if you're interested in something like why do women have less money than men in the world, this is maybe the biggest part of that equation. And by this, I mean sort of how we devalue care work in general. So women are expected to fulfill these roles because we're women. That's still sort of put on us. And even studies from you know lockdown in 2020, how men, when working from home, were more likely to be working from the home office, while women were more likely to sit 
by the kitchen table with their laptops. Women did sort of the the bigger chunk of that childcare. This expectation is still very real and it hurts women's earnings because this question, you know, how are you going to do both is not taken seriously enough economically because the unpaid work is not counted and it's just something that we're supposed to do. And the other bit of that equation is the fact that because care work was something that women have been expected to just do for free as kind of an extension of our femininity, it's also something that when these roles have moved onto the formal labor market, there was not much incentives to why should we pay care workers a lot when women have done this for free for centuries. So therefore, in almost every economy in the world, care work is among some of the lowest paid professions. And that hurts women because women tend to be, to a larger extent, in these parts of the economy. And so how do we start to value women's work? I mean, this is a big question, but that's essentially what we're saying, right? How do we start to measure it and therefore value it and pay for it? We should say it's not just women. I mean, for example, I have a setup where my husband is the stay-at-home dad, right? And there are, you know, families obviously where it's men doing this, but still the expectation is on women and women are still doing most of this work. I think the start is to do what feminist economists have been arguing for for decades, which is include this in GDP. And there's lots of different ways of doing this. You measure the amount of time people spend on this work. And then you, for example, assume if this childcare was done on the market instead, what would the value of it be? And that completely changes the picture of the economy because this is a huge part of it. It's just invisible. So I think the first bit is to measure it. And then after you measure it, it's this discussion that we are having, and I think we should have much more of, which is recognizing this as a fundamental economic choice. You know, what should the balance be? How do we make sure that in a society, we have healthy families and healthy children, and people can have a healthy balance between reproductive work and productive work and work in the formal economy and work in the informal economy, recognizing the value of things like volunteering, of looking after children, is the first step to even having that discussion and then you can you know you can reach different conclusions depending on where you stand for example politically but right now there's this huge part of the economy that we don't even see and it matters for example in if a state is in financial trouble and starts cutting public services to save money yes that's is saving in money for that state however a lot of that work done by public services still has to be done. What happens, but it's invisible, is that women will quit their jobs to look after elderly parents or look after children if there is nobody else doing it. So the work still has to be done, but the cost is not taken by the state anymore. It's taken by individual women in terms of lower pensions, lower earnings, and that's not recognized. And that tremendous pressure that many women, you know, especially women who both have to have, you know, younger children that need care and perhaps elderly parents and a society where elderly care is not 
working is not sufficient. That's enormous amounts of pressure that we put these individual women under. But if we were to look at the economy differently, just measuring these things, we could explain it. And that would be the first step to designing policies that can actually help. What's important as well is that we move away from putting the blame on women and putting more pressure on women because women have so much to deal with, right? That the system is essentially what needs to be fixed, not women. I think that's such an important point. Exactly. That's the key. And I think that's, you know, why I'm passionate about feminist economics, because it gives you that larger perspective. It's not just you and your work-life balance and the impossibility of doing everything. It's actually the economy. (laughs) Yeah. How it's measured, how it's set up, how it's viewed, and that it's based on the exclusion of women and that we don't recognize these things that women spend so much of their day doing as economic activity, work, or something that contributes to the wealth of our nations. And that's just shocking. And what's holding us back from making these changes quickly? We've been talking about this for quite some time. What's holding us back? How do we accelerate change? Well, I think measuring unpaid housework in GDP here in Britain, the ONS could do that, that would just require a political decision, right? So that could be sorted out. I think there is things happening. I mean, GDP measurements and what is growth and how should we measure it? I think there's a big discussion around that. It's probably moving too slow for many of us, but I certainly feel that things are happening. And also there's a case for patience because it's comparatively new, this whole thing. I mean, the relationship between men and women has probably changed more in the past 80 years than in the previous 800 or even more. We're living in the midst of this big and also very successful revolution, I think. I mean, the feminist movement and what it stands for has been extremely successful in changing expectations for women and men and families in the last couple of decades. And I think there's also, you know, we need to recognize that nobody has worked this out yet. This is a tricky balance. I mean, I'm from Sweden and internationally, many people believe that, oh, the Swedes, we've solved this. We've worked out a system where where this can be done and people can have it all. And Sweden invests around 4% of GDP, I think, into policies trying to help families and you know maternity leave paternity leave affordable childcare and that's all great but that doesn't seem to translate in for example that there's no glass ceiling in Sweden Sweden has never had a female prime minister the wage gap between men and women in Sweden is not you know the smallest in the world at all so you know it's a tricky policy area and It will probably take a little bit of time, but it's worth doing anyway. I completely agree. And my view on this is the more women we have as economists and the more women we have in these leadership positions who are sitting at the table making informed decisions that represent women's views, women's experience, etc., we should see these changes come into play a lot more quickly. Yes. That's a good point. I do believe so as well. And I hope so. There's actually not that much research around that, you know, if women really make different decisions and, you know, women in power, which is funny, but 
I sure hope that, that, you know, bringing that perspective with them, because it's much harder to escape that perspective if you grow up as a woman. And it's having that sort of 30, 33% of female representation. So it's not just one woman sitting at the table surrounded by 30 men, for example. It's got to be that minimum threshold so that you have that diversity and sufficient voice and perspective around the room. Yeah. Now, we've talked about this a little bit, the pandemic, and how that's impacted and it continues to impact women in terms of their jobs, childcare, homeschooling. What are the implications on a woman's purse and her net worth today and looking ahead as a result of the pandemic? I'm sure you know, and many of your listeners know, this has been called the first modern she session in the sense that, especially if you look at data from the United States, and I think even Britain, this is an economic crisis that seems to be hurting female employment in a way that normally economic crises since the 70s have not done. Because those we have tended to think about a financial crisis or an economic crisis as something that tends to start with something in finance and banking or asset bubbles. And then the bankers lose their jobs. And then that hits manufacturing, which is also male dominated. And from there on, it sort of moves out into the rest of the economy and therefore tends to hit a normal economic crisis, if there is such a thing, tends to hit female employment later. While this time that has not been the case, especially not if you look at the US, where women were hit in the first wave, because this crisis really started in the human body, right, in a way, which is also something that economics doesn't think about that much, the human body and how the economy is actually fundamentally based on bodies and the work of bodies. But it started there and, you know, there was a decision to shut down large chunks of the formal economy, especially the service sector, which is, you know, the biggest employer in the global economy and where many women are working. So, you know, the shops and the restaurants, these type of sectors, you've seen a lot of job losses there. And therefore, women have lost their jobs to a larger extent than what will be considered sort of normal in a normal crisis. And that's why this term, the she session, was coined. This doesn't seem to be true in every economy. I mean, we're still in the middle of this. But it's certainly interesting from that perspective. And I think the other issue that has really been brought to the forefront by this pandemic is how do we value care workers, you know, and why? I mean, here in the UK, once a week, everybody during the big lockdown in spring, everybody went out and clapped for care workers and the work they were doing, risking their lives and their health, sort of getting us out of this. Many of those were women, obviously, not just, but... This is brought to the forefront, you know, how do we value different things? You know, why these jobs are, are tremendously important. They're some of the most fundamental jobs in the whole economy. Why are they not paid more? This whole issue is very important for women collectively because for the last couple of decades, there's been a big discussion around pay equity in the sense that, oh, it's unfair that if a man and a woman do exactly the same job, the woman earns less. 
And that gender pay gap, we've managed to decrease quite a lot. However, that's not the gender pay gap that matters the most to women, because the gender pay gap that matters the most to women is the fact that female-dominated professions, for example, a lot of big chunks of the care sector and the healthcare sector, tends to be valued you know, less than many male-dominated professions. And that's really the big reason to why women as a group earn less than men as a group. And I hope that one of the things we can learn from this pandemic is just think about why we value different things differently and if it makes sense. And the third one we've already touched upon, which is sort of the unpaid childcare, which obviously during lockdown where families had to try to do it all without help from grandparents or paid childcare or, or the amazing work done in our schools, we all realized that it was an unfeasible equation. Gosh, there's so much there. That The question of value, I think, as you say, it's fundamental. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about women's innovation. And we know that women's innovation has largely been ignored. And this is the subject of your new book. You have a new book coming out in May, June, and it's called Mother of Invention. Can you tell us a little bit more about this premise? I can actually tie it into what we were talking about just now about how we value different things. Because when it comes to something like innovation, it's striking. My forthcoming book is called Mother of Invention, How Good Ideas Get Ignored in an Economy Built for Men. And that is literally what it's about, how good ideas get ignored because of our ideas about gender. And it starts in a very concrete example, which is the fact that we didn't get wheels on suitcases until 1972, which is this mystery of innovation that a lot of economists have talked about because it's, it's very tangible. And it's, you know, when you, you think back to it, like this product was suitcases with wheels, it didn't really catch on. I mean, it was invented in 1972, but it didn't really catch on until the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s. I mean, the wheel was invented 5,000 years ago. Why did it take so long? So it's something that has been discussed. And I found a different perspective on it, which is the perspective of gender. And that's where the book starts. The reason why people didn't want suitcases with wheels or buyers at American department stores after the product was invented in the 70s was an assumption that no man will ever roll a suitcase with wheels. It's unmanly. And they were just not thinking about women because, yes, women travel, but if a woman travels, she will always travel with a man who will then have to carry her bags for her in order to prove his masculinity. So there were a lot of these assumptions going on for decades that prevented this idea, this idea that we now take for granted. You know, of course, why can't a man roll a suitcase with wheels? I mean, masculinity is a lot of things, but, you know, it probably doesn't hang by, by that alone. And women now travel alone. Business travel for women was something that took off in the 1980s in the West. And demand for this product, a suitcase with wheels, also took off. And the product ended up obviously disrupting the whole global luggage industry. And that's where the book starts because it's a very tangible 
example of how completely blinded we can be by these ideas about gender and how much it matters for innovation. You know, literally what technology gets made, what doesn't get made, which are the ideas that we have and don't have. So the book is full of these quite concrete examples, but there's also the larger economic picture of it tying back to how women's work is devalued and why female dominated professions always almost always ends up being the ones that are low pay a big chunk of that i argue in the forthcoming book has to do with how we define technology if you look back historically women's innovations tend to be defined as not technology you know or what men do is defined as technological and what women do not as technological so for example programming computer programming used to be quite a female dominated profession the first computer programmers were women here in england actually even my mother was a computer programmer she's now retired even when she was was working in the field of computing in the 1980s beginning of the 1990s it was still a lot of women And back then, especially in the 60s and 70s, computer programming was not defined as being very technical. There was this idea that, you know, women could do this and, you know, you could program a computer if you were good at cooking from recipes or good at knitting or good at following instructions, things that women were assumed to be good at. And it wasn't well paid either. Then when sort of men started coming into the profession, it starts to become defined as being very technical, still the same thing, and then pay goes up. And this happens in a lot of fields, actually. Men come in, the field starts to be redefined as something very technical. Innovations in that field start to be defined as very technical. And then women are squeezed out. So the definition of technology you know i talk about in the book that technology has been defined as what men do you know we talk about the iron age or the bronze age we might as well talk about the ceramics age or the flax age but you know innovation in textile or innovation in ceramic is not seen as technological in the same way because these are forms of technology associated with women and this holds back innovation in a fundamental way in the economy and it also holds women back that's the argument of that forthcoming book so powerful how much of this katrine do you think can be traced back to who holds the purse strings in terms of the investments take something like venture capital which is obviously only one way of funding and an innovation or a company or a startup, but it's one that's become increasingly important and powerful in the last 15, 20 years. And the numbers when it comes to venture capital, there are some of the most shocking for women of all. I think in the UK, it's 97% of, of all venture capital investments that goes to all male teams. In Sweden, where I'm from, it's worse. It's 99% goes to men. And this is how it looks approximately all over the world. And obviously, if 
black women or brown women, it's even harder. And this is shocking because what we fund now is what will be the companies of the future, the innovations of the future, the drugs that we take, the AI we develop. And if that's the money that goes into that is to that extreme extent going to, let's be honest, white men, then that's the problem. You know, especially since all of us, I hope now, recognize the importance of diversity, especially when it comes to the ability of coming up with new solutions. So I think that's a huge, huge problem. And I think the financial system has a lot of work to do on innovation and how we fund innovation and what's the logic built into these systems that exclude women to such a shocking extent. Absolutely. And I'm so excited to see so many more female VCs, female angel investors who obviously invest at the very early stage. What do you think we're likely to see if more women back female-led businesses? I think that's where the future of innovation is in so many ways. The forthcoming book, it ends you know, with the issue of, of the climate emergency and climate change and how crucial innovation and new technology is together with behavioral change to, to solve this sort of massive innovation problem. And we need everything we can get in order to fix this problem. And right now we are really innovating with at least one hand sort of tied behind our backs because you know, we the best ideas and the, the people with the new solutions, they are not getting to the money. They're not even getting anywhere near the money. And fixing that, that sort of access problem, I mean, I think it's evident that that will just unleash a new wave of innovation and new thinking and new solutions and new technology, which we desperately need. So I think few things are more important because this is about the future, you know, where the money goes to right now. That's the technology we're going to have in 10, 15 years time. That's right. And it's mostly modeled on the male default, isn't it? It is. Yes. And I think it's, you know, obviously we need more female investors. I think there's also, you know, many women run Startups and female innovators seem to be more comfortable with angel investors and don't like a lot of the sort of VC model for different reasons. I think, you know, that's something to look into when we discuss this. Why do women not get this type of funding? And, you know, what type of funding would be good for women and the ideas that, that women have? And how can we change the system? Because I think that's really what it's about. It's the logic within the system that benefits a certain type of innovation and a certain type of ideas. And those tend to not be the type of businesses and the type of ideas and the type of innovations that women come up with. So there's a huge kind of mismatch problem there. And I think there's also a lot of money to be made, to be frank, in fixing that problem. And the world that we live in now is so different. It's in desperate need of a new type of investor. We need diverse thinking, cognitive diversity, people who have had different experiences, which hasn't really been reflected in the world that we live in. And so we're literally saying, can we open this up? Can we open up our worldview to include all of these people, whatever gender they are, so that it's a better world for everyone? Yeah. And 
I think also when it comes to innovation, there's something to be said for if you are not the norm, if you're not the white man, then the world is not built for you. And you have to, you are forced to look at it a little bit from the outside. And I think that perspective, there's something to be said for if you are on the outside like that and the world is not built for you, it's perhaps easier to see ways that the world could and should be improved for everyone. I don't have sort of numbers backing up that idea, but I do think there's something there. And if you look at just, for example, how many innovations that we have today that were first, for example, developed for disabled people, you know, everything from the fact that we write on the typewriter was developed partly for for a blind countess in Italy or touchscreen technology or even email itself. A lot of these things, many of the people that saw the potential of of some of these technologies were from this community. And I think, yeah, I think there's there's really, really something to be said for, for the importance of diversity in general, obviously, but especially when it comes to innovation. You just reminded me, Katrina, there's this wonderful quote, and it goes something like, design it for men, you build it for men. If you design it for women, you build it for everyone. Ah, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) One of my favorite ones. Now, just to finish up, what would you say to women who have never thought about investing in, say, female-led startups or businesses before, but are thinking about it? I would say just look at the shocking numbers. And I mean, I think they speak for themselves, don't they? They do. In terms that there's huge untapped potential here, right? And that's always what one should be looking for when it comes to investment, isn't it? So I think there's huge opportunity and also just for the sake of the world, right? I don't say that women have an obligation to invest in other women, but it's certainly a worthwhile course and it's something that needs to happen and it's an exciting thing to be part of and you know being part of I think there's a movement building around these things and that's also challenging a lot of the assumptions of investing and finance and I think it's coming from two directions both all of the sort of the the green movement when it comes to investing and this sort of push for diversity and investing in ideas and innovations from people who normally are not being invested in. And I think this is this the future and it's happening and, you know, it's an exciting thing to take part in, I believe. What do you think? Yes, I'm 100% with you. I think uh, this is a very exciting time. There is this, and I'm going to quote Heather Ettinger, who I interviewed just a week or so ago, who said there's a tsunami of influence that's coming from uh, women as female entrepreneurs, also as female investors. And it will change the world that we live in. And I think if you've never thought about investing before, certainly, you know, start reading, start listening to podcasts, videos, whatever. This is not investment advice, but you can look at crowdfunding websites where you can invest just a little bit of money into some of these new businesses, female-led businesses. I say this a lot, you know, the female market is hugely underserved. It has been ignored, as you know, Katrine. And the time is now for women as it's acknowledged just how huge this opportunity is. But we need 
a very different type of business and a very different type of investor so that we can navigate through these difficult world challenges, whether it's climate change, you know, world hunger, poverty, you name it. Obviously, we have issues around the pandemic. And women are bringing a whole new mindset, a whole new approach. And by investing in them, we're going to be addressing some of these key world problems. So it's important that we back them. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And it's exciting. You know, I can feel it happening. And, and that's cool. Absolutely. Well, Katrine, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to acknowledge you for all of your contribution, your research, your approach. I think you're helping to drive the conversation in a way that it absolutely needs to go. And so I want to thank you. If listeners want to connect with you, where can they find you? Send me a request on LinkedIn. If you're on LinkedIn, I am starting a email newsletter, which might be going when this podcast is published. And you can then find that on my website, which is katrinemarsal.com. And the forthcoming book, Mother of Invention, in the UK, it's available for pre-order on Amazon if you're interested in that book. I can't wait to read it. And tell us about this newsletter, Katrine. Yes, I just feel there needs to be a newsletter on feminist economics. So Feministonomics is a weekly newsletter that I'm about to launch and I'm very excited about. Wonderful. Well, I'll be a subscriber for sure. And no doubt we'll catch up soon. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.